0: Have you been zombified by love? Welcome to the Zombified Podcast, your source for fresh brains. I'm Athena Aktipis, psychology professor at ASU and chair of the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance.
1: And I'm your co-host, Dave Lindbergh-Kenrick, media outreach program manager at ASU and brain enthusiast.
0: We really like brains. (laughs) We We love brains. So, yeah, so when we say brains... We want you all to murmur brains as if you're zombies. So oh, yeah. we love brains. Brains. Perfect. All right, so whenever you hear a guest saying brains,
1: brains. I, I also think since this season's about love, when they hear us say love, they should all say love. love. <laughs> so.
0: I like that. Excellent. Yeah, so that's what this season is about. And that's what this episode is about. Undead Love, this That's is right. our, our season premiere, our launch episode all in one.
1: That's right, because this season we have quite a bit about how relationships can zombify us. There's there's a couple of sort of main themes, I think, yeah. this season, right? So, one of them
0: is is definitely love, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So let's talk about
2: love.
1: <laughs> I'm not trying to be over analytical Retracing
3: time to remind myself how ugly this could be But something else is taking over me
0: oh. So Zombified is about all the things that manipulate us That's right so. yeah. And this season? Is all about love, relationships, healthy and unhealthy things, That's including right. both relationships and just like your your own well-being as a human.
1: Yep, and and different types of relationships. So yeah. romantic relationships and parent child relationships.
0: Yeah, should we um, talk about some of the episodes that we're gonna yeah, have in this season? Yeah, I think season? so. Let me grab all right,
1: little episode list.
0: So we have a awesome. So this is,
1: which is this pill brain? This is pill brain. This is interesting because this is about, so the the things that we talk about this season are sort of how technology manipulates us, how our health manipulates us, and how relationships manipulate us. And pill brain is about how being on birth control can change people's personality. So it sort of hits at that intersection. Yeah.
0: If, If you think of drugs as part of technology, human technology... I kind of think of them that way. Then, yeah, then this episode hits on all of those. And plus, uh, Sarah Hill is a hilarious, awesome, fun guest whose idea of the zombie apocalypse involves organic arugula. (laughs) (laughs) So you're definitely going to have to listen to that one to to find out more. That's
1: a good one. And so then we also have placental hijacking. Yes. So if you're not on the pill you might end up uh, with, with this, a baby coming right out of your brain. So um.
0: <laughs> Exactly. This is not actually a description of the biology of placentation. I just want to be clear. <laughs> this is, um, a, it's, a, it's a metaphorical yeah. um, explanation. Um, so David Haig is one of the leading theoretical biologists like of our time. He's made so many amazing um, discoveries about how um, organisms actually hijack each other um, through sort of manipulating parental investment. Everything from plants to humans that are are pregnant. So in this episode, we talk about placentas, their biology, and how they actually can be involved in this hijacking process. And we also talk about sharks and shark babies and...
1: But that that general theme of how people in relationships sometimes have conflicting needs, that keeps coming up. It keeps
0: coming up again and again, yeah. And so, so, um, and this episode leads really nicely into our next episode because um, David Haig talks about this phenomenon called parent offspring conflict that you don't always have aligned interests with your offspring. And that's where you can get conflict happening. And the next episode, right after it, is Mombi. Microchimeric Mombi. So I don't know, do you know what microchimerism is?
1: Do you want to explain it? I, I do. To to there. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know there'd be a quiz. <laughs> so. a
0: microchimerism is when a small number of cells go into the body of another individual. And this happens while a woman is pregnant. Some of the cells from the baby go into the mom, and from the mom go into the baby. And this can have all sorts of intriguing effects on maternal health and somewhat paradoxical effects on maternal
1: health. does it have effects on personality?
0: We don't really know yet, but fetal cells have been found in the brain. Interesting. So So. they're there. They're expressing genes, doing something. So we speculate a little bit about what might be going on there. But, um, yeah, so this is Amy Boddy, and she has a baby coming out of her this is also... Is
1: this, is this an accurate not representation an accurate, of how babies are born? This is not how babies oh, are born. So, no. all right, well, so. <laughs> All right, and then...
0: Uh, our next...
1: This, and then our next is Love Zombies. And, With Diana Fleischman. Uh, Diana Fleischman, how... <laughs> How people in relationships will use positive and negative reinforcement, sometimes without even knowing it, right?
0: That's right, yeah. So if you feel like you've been zombified by your relationship, whether for good or bad, or zombified by your child or even your parents, then this episode is definitely for you.
1: Yeah. Even and. if you don't know that you're being zombified, check it out. <laughs> maybe maybe you're zombifying them. Or maybe you could be, you know? Yeah, or so. maybe
0: you're so effectively zombified that you don't know that you're being zombified.
1: That's true. So,
0: so you so. better listen. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we're lucky enough to actually have with us today Diana, Diana Fleischman, so. who will be our first guest for our live launch today. Well, Diana. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Diana, thanks so much for being here. Could you tell us a little bit about
2: who you are? Hi there. I'm Diana Fleischman, and I am a psychology academic, but I'm a sabbatical right now, and I might be going into science communication, and I'm writing a book right now about this idea. Uh, the book is tentatively titled How to Train Your Boyfriend. It probably will always be titled that. (laughs) And it's basically about the idea that we evolved to use these kinds of principles uh, with one another. So I've always been somebody who's kind of attracted to rebellious ideas. And when I was young, evolution was not taught in school, so I became obsessed with evolution. And then when I started studying evolution, behaviorism was really in my line, So then I became obsessed with behaviorism. (laughs) And then I realized that there's a really interesting interface of these two ideas, which is that if we can learn in through rewards and punishments if we can teach anything from rats to pigeons to snapping turtles to do a behavior with rewards and punishments how could that not be instantiated in some way in our ability to manipulate others so what would be an example in a relationship
0: of how someone might use these sort of behaviorist techniques the, the positive and negative reinforcement to to change the behavior of somebody that they love
2: Yeah. So I think that one thing that's very interesting is that uh, we are not really aware of this. And I think that there's a variety of reasons for that. So one thing I'll say is that most of the time we're not consciously aware. And it's so interesting to me, if you think about many of the greats in psychology, have been people maybe on the spectrum a little bit. So people for whom mind reading was alien enough to them that they had to figure out how other people worked. So so, when you say on
0: the spectrum, you mean on the autism spectrum? Yeah, exactly. Like
2: people who are like, well, this is not obvious to me, so let me reverse engineer it. So I think that we're so close to this reward and punishment that we're doing to others that it's hard for us to be aware of it. And another thing is that if you look at rewards and punishments in the laboratory, the quicker they're dispensed, the more effective they are. And so one thing would be even just a, a look or a tone of voice change those things can be either punishing or reinforcing, and we're not necessarily aware that we're doing them. You know, scientists who look at facial expressions have noticed that there are tiny micro-expressions that we dispense without even being consciously aware of those. And what are those if they're not, you know, rewards and punishments and, and signals to one another? Another thing is that we spend an inordinate amount of time learning someone else's preferences and aversions, the things that they find the you know, worst and best, even words that they like and dislike, people have strange, you know, pet hates in that way. And so why do we spend so much time learning that? I mean, you know, I would argue that we learn those things so that we can use them. And we never know when what things are gonna come in handy, you know, figuring out someone's particular repertoire of rewards and punishments. Hmm.
0: So say you're in a new relationship and um, your partner does something that you're you don't like. Yeah. How would you train your boyfriend?
2: So one thing that you have to be really careful about is you have to first think about why is it that this thing bothers me. So I'll tell you about a funny argument that I had. I was in uh, the, the caves, what are those famous caves called in New Mexico? Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I was in Carlsbad Caverns. And I took a selfie with my now husband and he looked absolutely miserable. And I was like, are you unhappy to be with me? I, 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 lost my, I totally lost it. And uh, we, we argued for like forever because he can't smile in pictures. And then I realized that, you know, his inability to smile in pictures was universal. He always looks miserable in pictures. In fact, you have to tell everybody not to smile so it doesn't look like he is in Congress. (laughs) (laughs) so uh, I just taught him how to smile like you know there's an Amy Schumer sketch like this where she's trying to learn how to smile for pictures I just taught him how to smile and now he knows how to fake smile like everyone else does but he never learned how and for me it was like okay why am I so bothered by this why why have we argued for an hour about this instead of enjoying you know stalagmites or whatever we were supposed to be doing and it's because it was a cue of divestment it was a cue that he wasn't enjoying my company and it was also thwarting my ability to show off how good my relationship with other people are. I can't post a selfie where my you know, where my boyfriend looks like I beat him. (laughs) That's not not cool. And so I think what's really important is to add an evolutionary perspective. You know, why do I have this desire to change this behavior? And instead of losing my mind, you know, or like getting really angry with him for a long time, why don't I just spend 30 minutes teaching him how to fake smile? And so I think that's the main thing is like, you have to figure out what what, what it is that's bothering you and uh, get to the source of that. You know, how do you change that?
1: So, so then did you give him like pellets when he <laughs> smiled successfully? How did you reward this?
2: Honestly, he's he, he's, a very, he's very, very sensitive to, to punishment. Um, <laughs> it's, I, I can just like give him a sideways glance and he feel bad forever. Um, and I think that that's like actually a pretty good indicator of a good uh, male partner is actually someone who's quite sensitive to guilt. Uh, I mean, uh, I mean, unless you're like somebody who's really over punishing, which is also a problem that my family and I do have, my, all the women in my family do. <laughs> um, so I don't give him pellets. I just like look at the picture. I see that he smiled or I look at him fake smiling and I smile at him or I tell him a joke or I give him a kiss. Like it's super easy. Oh,
1: okay.
2: um, Yeah. So he's very, very sensitive to both my like approval and disapproval. But I think that's what love is, is like just inordinate sensitivity to somebody's approval and disapproval. And gradually that gets desensitized. And you know there are also ways to kind of prevent that as well. Yeah.
0: So love is inordinate sensitivity to somebody's approval or disapproval.
2: Yes. Love uh, uh. <laughs> is when your brain,
1: brain is
2: really sensitive to someone's <laughs> approval uh, and and disapproval.
1: So, so real quick, you said there were ways to sort of prevent the desensitization. Are there? Yeah.
2: Any good? So so I, I think that. I mean, I've, tr- I've tried to find some, some literature about this, but I don't think that there's very good literature about courtship. You know, what happens during courtship is that you spend all this time actually sensitizing yourselves to each other, to your moods, to your facial expressions, and you learn all this stuff about each other and you have all this sex and you like spend all this time together um, just inseparably. And I think courtship is usually a kind of a time-limited period of time, but you can do things that mimic Uh, courtship and also resensitize the other person to rewards and punishments. So, you know, when they tell people to go on novel experiences together, those kinds of novel experiences mimic the kind of dopamine rush of courtship. And when you see somebody in a new light, like let's say you're spending time with your partner with new people, then you see different facets of them than you can bring out yourself. And that also piques your interest and is a little bit like a renewed source of courtship. But also, you know, why are teenagers rebellious against their parents? It's because they feel like their parents are trying to manipulate them against their own self-interest. My parents are trying to keep me from having sex. Sex is the exact thing I want to have. So like, I don't know why they would do that, right? So there's this like rebellious period that happens. And if your partner gets the sense that you're manipulating them against their self-interest, or if you use rewards and punishments all the time, you know, just like like nagging. Nagging is basically continuous punch and punishment that desensitizes you the same way as like you've, you've seen kids in the mall or whatever like mom, 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 mom <laughs> and then only when the kid yells does the mom respond. Sure. You're, you know, you're training the kid <laughs> you're training the kid to yell and you're training the mom to become desensitized the kids train the mom to become desensitized. The same thing happens with, with nagging. If you use the same like a low level punishment all the time then the person would become uh, desensitized. to I just remember this because my grandmother is such an amazing example of this. She would just go on a tear at my grandfather for almost no reason. And he really loved to waltz. He loved to do ballroom dancing. So he'd hum a waltz to himself while he played with his cutlery until it was over. And, she would totally ignore her. <laughs> and I just thought, like, she is really not doing what she means to do. She's getting all worked up. And, uh, you know, the, the whole purpose of that is, is being thwarted by him humming a waltz <laughs> himself. So it's it's a little bit like an arms race.
1: So, so she should take him on a vacation and yell at him there. Right? Well, <laughs>
2: exactly. exactly. <laughs> All right. so. Diana, do you have any special plans for Valentine's Day? I do not have any special plans. I mean, uh, my husband might have special plans. I'm just coming back from Arizona. I think that's good enough. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much for being
0: here with us. I think we should uh, have our next guest, Katina Michael. Come on up. Thank you.
1: Can I give a quick little intro? Yes, please. So one of the other things that we talk about, was we mentioned, was technology. And Katina is an expert on this, on how technology zombifies us. We should probably all say technology.
0: (laughs) 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 Yeah, Katina, would you introduce yourself in your own words for us? Okay,
4: Katina Michael, Australian. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Grew up in Tempe, Australia, and I'm at Tempe, Arizona. (laughs) Uh, I'm in the School for the Future of Innovation in Society, a cool school, may I add. And I also work in another cool school, the School of Computing and Informatics and Decision Systems Engineering. And I love all things tech and society. I don't think I have a favourite. And I try to see things from as many different lenses as possible. Um, The thing that takes me close to tech is people. It's not tech, it's people and how they connect.
0: Mm. And then we're getting into the love of
1: things.
0: So, Katina, what aspects of um, technology intersect actually with this sort of connection and love and relationships the most?
4: <laughs> I think it's the way we're using technology to bond. Uh, I, I recall a study that was done by one of our PhD students uh, in Australia, and she looked at whether technology actually helps families come closer together or tears them apart. And what she found after observing about eight or nine families and their children and uh, parents and whoever partners and extended family members visiting was that for dysfunctional families, computing and tech tears them further apart. For example, uh, you might use the phone to make a a voice call uh, and if the person doesn't answer, you'll leave a message or you'll send an SMS or your direct message on Facebook, on the wall. But if the family is dysfunctional to start with, no-one replies. And so there's this distancing. Instead of it being a tool to come closer instantaneously to someone, uh, within seconds, within milliseconds of pressing the send, it tears you apart. So if you've got a child who doesn't respond perhaps to your voice calls, you might try texting. And if they don't respond to your text, like come to dinner and you're in the same house. uh, You know, and you've called out and they won't come. Uh, You might try... getting into the instant gaming engine to send an instant message. That'll draw their attention, you know. Um, or use a bell.
0: Or just turn off the Wi-Fi. Turn off the Wi-Fi. Actually, that's the fastest. <laughs> that's you the don't even have to
4: confiscate tech. <laughs> just turn
1: off the Wi-Fi. Yeah. Why
4: Wi-Fi? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: But now with other families, does it bring them together? So where there is a strong bo- bond, where there is Love. Uh. love
4: it can act uh, as an amazing tool for proximity. It's almost like this God view, this, this view, this innate uh, proximity that's calling out to the creator perhaps or to earth, whatever you believe, uh, or to, to someone you love.
1: love.
4: <laughs> and, and, and it's like this instant connection and so... I don't tell people don't send SMSs to people you love. I don't tell them no. don't leave, you know, instant messages <laughs> to people you love. No. Uh, because actually, doesn't it feel good when there's this feedback loop and we feel connected, we feel loved? No. You can still say It's past tense, but you can still say it. But it's a reassurance. There's someone out there that cares for you and will do anything for you. And so some of us have routines. We wake up, we might send a text to our friend Uh, A a dear close friend. Uh, We might send a text to our spouse or partner, uh, someone who's ill, Um, a child. If they've had a bad day, uh, you know, the week before at school, you'll check up on them during the day, you know, are you okay? And that feedback loop, there's nothing more special than that. There's nothing, you know, no man is an island. There's nothing more special than someone saying, I love you. Love. I've it, haven't I? I don't mean to. I don't mean to. But, um, yeah, I, I, in this theme of undead love. Love. <laughs> that we're here today to talk about. It's like I, I decompartmentalised it, the undead, and that other word. <laughs> and I, I, I thought about this thing of uh, the cataphatic and the apophatic. And I'll be very simple. Cataphatic in theology is about things that you know of, their images, their symbols, their words. So you say to someone, I love you like the ocean. Or I love you to the moon and back. And then apophatic is, I love you so much, I can't even talk about it. I love you so much, right? (laughs) Um, And you didn't say love. Uh, (laughs) But one of my closest friends in the universe, in fact, apart from my husband and my kids, uh, parents, uh, an immediate family, sent me this uh, beautiful piece last year by Nizar Kabani. forgive me, a Syrian poet from The Boat of Love. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) And it it says something like this, because my love for you is higher than words I've decided to fall silent. And that's the apophatic, right? Because my love for you is higher than words I have decided to fall silent. It's on the front page. Because I love so much Mm -hmm. that I can't even express how much I love you you know, it's, it's that's, that's the unknowing, that's the apathetic, right, yeah. that's the, I can't find the expression in the universe to tell you that, and so you fall silent because you're so, sort of like your heart is gripped so much that you think, I can't even find the darn words, the earthly words, it's somewhere in here. You just push that little, little
0: button that has the heart. Yes. not the proper one. yes, <laughs> yes. yes. So, uh, Katina, how is technology changing how people look for love or sort of mm. find that connection?
1: <laughs> I think we, we got to drop this. <laughs>
0: yeah.
4: <laughs> We're not getting just anywhere. Just brains. Just brains. Maybe. So, amazingly, we've got so much tech, but we haven't been lonelier. We see this in student populations. Tech everywhere. Screens everywhere. We spend between 11 and 16 hours on screens and yet we're depressed sometimes, anxious and lonely. Why? Why at the time of the universe where we've had so much connectivity, we are so disconnected? And so many wonderful scholars have talked about that, including Sherry Turkle and so forth. So I'm not saying to you, you know, Together Alone, her latest book from a couple of years back. What's going on here? Is it this... this uh, blockage between us because we're using a medium that's not natural. Like, I'm looking at you, Athena. I'm looking at you, Dave. Your eyes are so important to me. And there's no screen there.
5: You know, you <laughs> know could I could... I, yeah, yeah, there could easily. be. I could put it like this, you know. uh, But there is a screen over there.
4: Yeah. But, but it's like we're seeing through each other. We're not looking at each other's eyes. I, I did an exercise in, in a class, a Barrett class here at ASU, and uh, Professor Zachary... Greg Zachary asked me, just come in and do something. And I said, OK. So I listened to him for half an hour. And then I decided to do a simple task. I said, students, you are some of the best students in the United States. Drop your books, go into pairs, and look at each other's eyes. (laughs) Uh, Two minutes. You know, people were doing this, uh, you know, they were this, you know, uh, started to talk but not look at each other. We can't do it anymore. Why? It's the most beautiful, most powerful, most empowering, most incredible thing, and I'm worried that we're seeing through each other with this. It's great for when it works, but if it doesn't work, we've forgotten what it feels like to touch. It's all right. And, and I've been on planes where people have shared some of their stories with me, uh, their marriage uh, discussions.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: And they said, you know, we feel so distant. We're in the bed. We're texting each other. We're on the <laughs> laptops. We're not sharing the intimacy. People have stopped making love. People have stopped having kids. People have stopped touching. I'm too tired because of the messages. <laughs> so we need to reorient. How can we put this thing in its place? How could we do what you were talking about with relationships but yeah. with this? Because you know what? Studies have shown that we have a deep affection for this and that we can't live without it. It's an Apple satisfaction survey with uh, Apple iPhones. Deep affection, separation anxiety. But we don't have that with people. If we lose this, we freak out more than if we lose our kid right? <laughs> Think about it. Think about it. It's true.
0: That's it's true.
2: true. It's true. <laughs> the example of the you know, proximate versus distal reinforcement. If all your social reinforcement is immediate coming from here and making plans yes. to make have lunch with a friend takes an hour, then what's yes. the easier way to get reinforcement, even though that's not nearly as good or satisfying?
4: It's like that game of Pong. You know, it was the 1970s game on the um, Atari. I hit a shot The shot comes back. So you're using a a striker and the, the ping pong ball is coming back and forth. And that's how we are. We're almost going into this endless feedback loop where we send a message. Oh, we expect it back. We send another message. We complain that the more messages come back, but we send another message. And what we've done is we keep halving the lifetime of the messages. So to what point before we start to break down and go, I can't... I have no more capacity to keep playing ping pong all night and all day with work, with, with family messages, with, with government, you know, what do we call it here, IRS? <laughs> <laughs> but all, those, all those fake calls that just keep calling us, the, the robo calls, right? Mm-hmm. So we're, we're over it, but we don't know how to change.
0: So, Diana, how does this tie in with sort of the reinforcement that we're getting from technology? I mean, your,
2: your phone is everyone you know, not just one person. So it's almost like a, like a dollar as opposed to like an object, right? It's just a universal currency of socializing and it's also more immediate. So it you know, works on behaviorist terms and I know people who've done things to make their phones less reinforcing to try to circumvent this. I know somebody, his phone's black and white he gets he takes the color off his phone twelve hours a day. It's amazing how much less reinforcing your phone is when it's in black and white. Huh. Or mm-hmm. there are people you know I, u- I use these tactics myself because when I get on social media I haven't been on Facebook for two years not because I don't love it it's because I love it too much I find it really addictive. And partly there's uh, there's some apps that you can buy and they just de- increase the, the lag. It takes thirty seconds for Facebook to load. It's amazing how much less reinforcing these things are when they take thirty seconds to load. And you could try and rejig things such that the reinforcement from engaging with people socially directly was faster and better than engaging with people through messaging. But it, you know, it's also hard. It's a lot easier to say something with an emoji than it is to speak with somebody. And you know, it's not just because we've been growing up around phones. It is objectively easier. I think. It is yeah. yes. We should
1: yes. just carry emojis around. We'd just be like, oh, yeah, I like that. that makes me feel like this. So then we don't need to talk, so. All
0: right. Well, Katina, thank you so much.
1: Thank
0: you. And welcome to Zach Compton, our next guest. Zach. Yes. Give It's all here. All right,
3: Zach, would
0: you introduce yourself? In your own words, for us. Sure.
3: Uh, my name is Zach Compton. I'm a first-year evolutionary biology PhD student here at ASU in Carlo Maioli's lab, and I've never been less excited for a book to come out than Diana's book. <laughs> 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 just a couple weeks ago, my girlfriend and I were driving back from a trip, and we had, you know, a really good time. Really got along, and we're coming back into Phoenix. She said, "You really respond so well to negative reinforcement." <laughs> so this whole time, I think we've had a great relationship, and I'm just responding. You guys a great relationship. <laughs>
0: So, you, you're in a special relationship now? I am. She's here. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> <Bye. laughs> so, uh, do you have special plans at all for Valentine's Day? Or I, can you not say because... I cannot
3: say, but you and Carl are on the same wavelength, so you can see a crested cactus from there. That's where the dinner is.
0: Oh, so very nice. I'll,
3: I'll let you guys go on a scavenger hunt this weekend.
0: <laughs> lovely, lovely. Yeah. Excellent. And would you say that you're zombified by by love in general? Or are there specific aspects of love that zombify you?
3: Apparently, because I'm just operating, you know, oh, things are going really well, and she's seeing it as, oh, man, he's so well today.
4: <laughs> <laughs> and so that's apparently,
3: you know, I'm learning something today that I am a little zombified by love, in a, in a good way, I guess. Yeah. Because I guess that's the foundation of a good relationship.
0: Yeah. Are you happy?
3: Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Maybe that's just the right mix of chemicals, though. <laughs>
1: You should probably get the book first, I think. So, you know,
0: pre-order, so. yeah. Diana, is your book just for um, people looking to
2: train boyfriends, or more generally? Can it go both ways? I, I mean, so, yeah, I, I talked to an agent, she wanted me to make it like how to train your partner. And do you remember Neil Strauss' The Game, which is written mm-hmm. for men? I actually know more women who've read that book than men, and so I think forbidden knowledge is a certain kind of appeal. And so I think, I mean, but I also think that in the current climate, how to train your girlfriend would not sell <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to buy and put one of those paper covers on the staple <laughs> in <for the> Bible <laughs>
0: so so Zach uh, have you had the chance to listen to some of those episodes of Zombified that are about to launch
3: I did and I won't ruin an entire episode like I did at the last launch. I've paced myself on the information I'll release
0: <laughs> <laughs> which one um, was your favorite so far
3: um, so in the Past couple of months, just because of the way my research has gone, I've been just captivated by the freak show that is shark um, physiology and anatomy. And so I was really it was really cute reading about how the baby sharks will eat another egg, and you know the mother will can will continue to release eggs so the baby has something to eat. And then I read the transcript a little further, and sometimes they start developing in an embryo, and the other twin will just eat the baby shark. I was like, uh, you know, less good, less fun. It's just like eating a little egg breakfast, but it was really neat. <laughs> bring some new meaning to that baby shark song. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <Exactly>.
0: yeah. So. <laughs> Great. Well, Zach, thank you so much thank for you. being yeah. here with us. Jessica Ayers. <laughs> <laughs> Jessica, welcome.
5: <laughs> welcome to Zombify would you introduce yourself in your own words yes i am jessica ayers i am your zombie uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and i study the behavioral manifestations of genetic conflict in humans what does that mean um so if you listen to amy and david Haig's podcast episodes they will explain it much better than i do but basically like think back to biology 101 There's eggs, there's sperm, they make a completely new human and that's actually not the way it works. Um, Genes from your mom and genes from your dad are always battling it out during your development and across your lifespan. And so I study basically how that inherent conflict actually is expressed across the lifespan. How does it get expressed? Um, So we have some stuff about pregnancy eating behavior um, and how pregnancy eating behavior is actually potentially a manifestation of genetic conflict. Um, And so we have some pretty cool suggestive evidence that we can predict potential pregnancy complications from this eating behavior. Um, It can manifest in family life. Um, I think it manifests in attachment strategies that people use across their lifespan. We have some stuff about how relationships with genetic kin versus non-genetic kin might be influenced by this kind of conflict. So the in-laws versus your family oh my god <laughs> so I, you have a story for i us. have a story for you <laughs> i really hope my mother-in-law is not listening or watching uh she <laughs> she knows she just hears me talking about her i love her let's put that out there first um so i presented a poster on our stuff about how mothers-in-law and daughters-in-law don't always get along and we have some suggestive evidence that that's the case <laughs> and she might have read the entire poster. She might also bring it up every time she sees me because she finds it so funny. So funny, like I'm pretty sure my husband's entire extended family knows that I did a poster on why mothers-in-law and daughters-in-law fight because she finds it so funny. All right, so, but but you guys love each other. Yes.
0: Well, and that's really all that matters because you have conflict, but if you have love, underlying
5: it then she also has a dog okay so i mean there are a lot of perks of having her for a mother-in-law excellent nice.
0: excellent so.
5: <laughs> and jessica do you have any
0: special valentine's day plans
5: um not really because my husband and my anniversary is actually two weeks after valentine's day so our entire relationship we've always celebrated that as the big thing um mm. we normally watch slasher flicks on valentine's <laughs> day <Cool>. <laughs> excellent, excellent.
1: <laughs>
0: Yeah, so um, I'd like to invite you guys to, um, to tell us, all of you, a little bit more about anything about your own relationships that is sort of, you know, potentially relevant or interesting for this discussion of
5: zombified love.
3: I'm sure enough, it's your turn. <laughs> uh,
5: I can give you an example of how zombified my husband is. All right. Uh, So I am insane. Apparently the way that I cope with graduate school is by adopting pets. (laughs) So I moved here and I had two cats. Since then, we have added two dogs, a hamster, two mice, two fish, two snails, two frogs, and a bunch of ghost shrimp.
1: Do you have an (laughs) ark?
5: Maybe. Is there anything
1: we should know, weather-wise? I mean,
5: I'm not saying is coming but maybe my house is a safe place to go it happen? <laughs> yeah, so.
1: so you're you're really zombified by uh by pets yeah so really zombified and so him. is he zombified by pets or is he just zombified by his love for you and so then
5: it started with his love for me the dogs like completely zombified him the cats completely zombified him oh my god him and those stupid mice are obnoxiously cute, and every morning he wakes up and walks over there and gives them a treat, and the mice are assholes to start with. I have never known a sassier animal than a mouse, Um, so we give them a treat, and if it's not the one they want, they smell it and they go, and then (laughs) <laughs> every morning without fail <laughs> the only thing he hasn't been zombified or, zombified by are the aquatic animals and he has said "Like you are on your own Like this is all you do. I am not involved I just
2: wrote a chapter about animal ethics and, and evolutionary psychology and some of the people at uh, University of Portsmouth have done things about dog behavior and how dogs zombify us And so the one thing that's really interesting is that dogs can do this thing where they they have this muscle here um, and they can like raise one eyebrow and it looks very much like what a kid does. In fact, this is gross, but if you dissect a dog's face, they have more facial muscles than than a wolf does and they can make more kind of what they call pedomorphic, like childlike Mm -hmm. facial expressions. And so dogs who can make this um, very sad face, um, they tend to get adopted much faster than dogs uh, who can't make this particular face. And so you just have to think about, um, you know, it, it's just unbelievable how much dogs kind of influence behavior. And in this paper, I was also writing about how um, people love dogs that have serious health problems. <laughs> so, you know, pugs and uh, uh, King Charles Spaniels and Bulldogs and things, they um, have their brach- brachis I can't remember if that's exactly the word, um, but they have these short snouts, which means that they like fart all the time and they die in the heat. Like, dog, you have one job, and that's like not to die just randomly. <laughs> and uh, they, they do, and, and there's this one study that said that people who have dogs who, are, who have these, these short snouts, any of all these health problems, they feel closer to their dogs. And so this actually reminds me a lot of codependent relationships (laughs) is that actually many people love people who need them. And they actually really reward behavior that would objectively seem like it's, it's no good. And they, people do the same thing with, with dogs. Is that they're rewarding the behavior that means um, this dog's not attractive anymore. Anyway. It's like farting, <laughs> and, and this dog would would die without me. And so it's weird because you would think that people would be reinforcing their kids and their partners for showing independent, self-sufficient behavior. But really, the opposite is true. You know, we often reward the worst and most codependent kinds of behaviors in others and our pets and our spouses and our kids. But do people like it when their spouses fart? <laughs> some people do. Yeah, <laughs> no, but people do like it when when their when partners... I, I was actually looking at, uh, you know, alcoholics. So um, some clinical psychologists try and train the spouses and families of alcoholics um, in behaviorist techniques to prevent them from, you know, drinking or engaging in other kinds of sabotaging behaviors. But... The interesting thing is that a lot of people are rewarding their partners for the behaviors that uh, start the drinking or even the drinking itself because it means that they rely on them. They're like sloppy drunk and they can't – or that nobody else will want them. And so we might not be aware of it, but actually what we're doing is trying to make it such that you know, other people are, uh, are dependent on us. And the last thing I'll say is like, you know, you were talking about watching slasher Fix on Valentine's Day. Um, there's this, this concept that I'm working on right now, which I call weirding. And it's about how we try to make other people more <laughs> unusual in the same way that we are, so I that can- we're more singular to each other mm-hmm. and that we're less replaceable through other people. And so if I can weird somebody, if I reward them for expressing similar interests in me and similar preferences than me, then I can make myself less replaceable. That's really interesting. (laughs) It is really interesting.
0: So, uh, Diana, can can I ask? uh, How does that relate to like different um, sort of relationship patterns, right? Because I know that you know if you have a monogamous relationship, then potentially it might be more important to kind of have someone who is just for you versus if you have a open relationship or a polyamorous relationship. Do you feel? Your well, we've we, we, we,
2: since we got married, we've been like disgustingly monogamous. But I will say that um, we, are, we are the polyamorous professors, uh, me and my husband are. And we have talked about this quite a bit because you know how I was talking earlier about, you know, extending the kind of process of courtship, extending that. Um, Actually, when you occasionally see other people, that does that actually. So it's very easy when you're monogamous and you're irreplaceable to each other. And when all the social norms and things say that you can't leave each other, that you stop trying. Because really, if you think about it, we expend as little effort as possible. That's why exercising doesn't feel great. It's because sitting on your butt feels awesome. Because (laughs) we are designed to expend as little effort as possible in every domain including in, in the mating domain. So one way of, you can remind yourself, like on Valentine's Day, to, to take care of each other and and be kind to each other. But if there's active competition, <laughs> then actually it makes you treat each other uh, better. And, you know, we just like to sprinkle a little bit of that, of that in, definitely. And so that also makes the other person more reinforcing in the same way that a toy is much more attractive if somebody else plays.
1: <laughs>
2: I mean, it, that's, that's just gonna be your, your favorite thing. Even dogs do that. <laughs> and so you have to think about um, you know, the the reward and punishment are not just kind of in a vacuum, but they're also contingent on how the social cues you're getting about um, how valuable someone or some behavior is. Hmm. So you guys are the polyamorous professors. Well, there's a video about us like that. Yes. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, <laughs> it's so funny because people are like, "Oh, you're really wedded." To, we're not really wedded to this idea, and so I. So
5: <laughs>
2: <laughs> But <laughs> I do think that uh, it is something that we that we think should be you know considered, and it, it's also I think more stable than um, you know, some kind of hardcore monogamy. I think it's somewhat more stable. It has some more flexibility to it. And Nestor Perel and many other people have talked about this, uh, this recently in that uh, you know, if any kind of outside interest is a total betrayal. Or if our narrative about love is that if you're only interested in one person and in love with one person. Um, you know, I think Jeffrey Miller, my, my husband, did a poll on Twitter, which was like, how many people have you been in love with? And everybody said one. Because I think the society accepted the answer is that anyone you were in love with before your current partner, partner doesn't actually count. You're only <laughs> really ever been in love with one person. And so I think that if we had more flexibility about these various ideas, it would be better. Um, but I also think that if we, added a little bit of outside interest or added a little bit of, uh, of you know, seeing our partner admired by other people, you know, thinking about from an evolutionary psychology perspective, um, you know, we were talking about this with, with phones, but also how unusual is it for us to live in an environment where you never see anyone else admiring your partner? You never see anyone else chatting with them or flirting with them. You never see them like let's say you have a, a husband or a wife who's really high powered where they work. But you never see that because when they come home, you know they're, they're just the person who does the dishes, right or does <laughs> right? the laundry or whatever. In that context, uh, if you never see somebody being admired, then you can't value them. As much as you maybe, as much as you maybe should, and so I think that adding those elements in, whether it's through some kind of openness or at least through seeing somebody in the context where they're most admired and most valued, can really help a lot in not taking each other for granted and help you know find that other person more rewarding. But you said that things have changed a little since I'm getting married <laughs> well, I mean, I, I've, I've moved to a new place it just seems like a lot of work to date new people <laughs> I mean um, the main the main way that I kind of in uh, that I, I like to do polyamory is because you know when you break up with somebody you spend all this time getting to know somebody and learning about them and meeting their family and stuff and then um, you break up with them and then you forget all about them and you never talk to them again I think that's terrible and so one of the main things that, that, that we do is that I am in touch with and sort of semi date everyone I've ever dated basically. <laughs> so, and, um, and that way I feel like I'm not like so dismembered to use a zombie word <laughs> from, from all my previous, uh, you know, previous, um, phases of my life. And it just, it really bums me out when people get break up and they're like, Oh, what? A, that was a total waste of time. Or that was three years gone or whatever. I'm like, you know, no, there was so much stuff that you that you might have learned. And if you completely detach yourself from all that because of this narrative that you have one person and one person only, I think that's really, really sad. Interesting. Sad. <laughs> <laughs> I share? Yes. Katina,
4: we're, we're We're almost chalk and cheese. Oh, um, uh, good. from <laughs> the perspective of listening to your thoughts, I think uh, are beautiful with respect to how to respect each other and how yeah. to keep that light happening. Uh, for someone who's only ever kissed a man once, uh, <laughs> better be, my whole life, actually, <laughs> uh, the only person I've ever kissed is my husband. Uh, married at 18, been married for 25 years, wow. happily married. That's awesome. Um, but I'm not going to say to you uh, it's been easy. I'm not going to say to you uh, that... Uh, actually, I've never thought about somebody else. Just keeping the blinkers on, and I focus on, on this beautiful person that... The mystery of love. You look into their eyes and it's unending to me. Um, I find so much uh, vitality, so much rigour in him that every day I, I, I tell him I love you and he says to me, do you know what, there's no one else I want, I, I could ever even think of next to me in my bed. I go to sleep happy as a person, it, happy, content, that I have the person I had to meet. Um, Beautiful. But, but maybe, the, and it's not to say to you, I don't tolerate your yeah, e- I e- so, yeah. e- each unto their own journey. Absolutely,
2: I think monogamy, like I think that kind of thing where oh, you've yes. grown together, is really beautiful. And I do think that um, some of the traditionalists have it right. Uh, you know, I was uh, I'm 38. I was 38 when I got married. That's really late. In some cultures, you know, y- you might as well mm. be in a nursing home at 38. <laughs> <laughs> You're never going to get married. And so that's a really long time to to date. And there's this awful thing that traditionalists say that women are like a piece of tape and the more the more you stick to somebody, the less sticky you get. But I do think that I fell really hard in love with the person I fell in love with when I was 16 and we had literally nothing in common. And I wouldn't even talk to him for five minutes today if I met him. But it was, I, was, I was receptive in a way that I am not anymore and so I think that it was really good that I spent all that time dating because I'm really compatible with the person I am with now because I couldn't attach to somebody I wasn't super compatible with. But if you are somebody who meets at 18, you can grow together and you can become attached in a way that I think uh, that He was
4: 32, so, <laughs> <laughs> so, so okay, that's well, a different story yeah, altogether. I think, I think
2: men fall in love, I mean, I think on average yes, yes. men <laughs> fall in love differently than women do. Um, but I'll just say that I do think that... Uh, that If people meet young, and this is why traditional societies really, really encourage this is because you are less, you know, if you talk to people, especially in New York or something, women in their 30s and 40s about who they want, they have to read the right kind of books and like the right kind of wine and drive the right kind of car. Whereas, you know, when you're 18, you can just look in somebody's Mm -hmm. eyes and fall in love. And I do think that's something that people don't really talk honestly enough about is how much easier it is to be zombified. When you are young,
4: I agree with <laughs> that. I agree with, that. Mm. I agree with that, that. A lot turns into your brain. <laughs> <laughs> the older you get, you think more. You know, I was always a very reasoning, logical person. You know, uh, I didn't date my husband before I said yes. I'm going to marry you. Right, the most illogical thing I've ever done. I thank God it was the right thing uh, that I did, uh, and that we've lived happily ever after. Um, but it was the opposite. You know, you said, have, have I ever done anything romantic? That was the opening question, I think, mm-hmm. the precursor to the, to the show. Crazy. Yeah, crazy. Crazy, crazy right? Yeah. Crazy for love. Well, imagine going to a high school reunion, seeing your teacher he hadn't seen for four or five months, walking down towards his old restaurant after the school reunion because your lift didn't arrive. And as you're walking, your then ex-teacher, who happens to be your... Theology teacher (laughs) (laughs) says to you, have you ever been in love? And you say no. And by the end of that trip, two kilometres down, you end up engaged. Wow. Uh, And uh, on my 25th anniversary, on December 13th, um, I was at Sydney Harbour. We had celebrated two days before when I went back to Australia and I thought, I have to write this story out. And I pounded out 10,000 words in about two hours. (laughs) And then we compared notes. Did that really happen? Do you remember that? Do you remember that we almost got killed crossing the road to the church? You know, beep, you know, (laughs) before that big proposal. But it was like that was life-changing. You know, and you think to yourself, how was that orchestrated? How was that crazy? That was the craziest thing. You know, I think everyone thought I was going to become a nun, you know. (laughs) <laughs> seriously you know the last person who was going to get married is that girl who's got the scholarship and wants to do theology one day uh, but it happened and I just still can't believe it it's a miracle I still think my marriage is a miracle and many of us have these amazing collisions at the least time you expect think, you <laughs> like like you're the one that I was destined to marry or to be with as a partner or to love Love. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I share that with you because here you have two stories, seemingly opposite, but this, the same binding connection is that. That this joy of not only wishing to spend the rest of your life together, but perhaps offspring, perhaps uh, looking after animals and pets uh, together as a, as a unit, uh, perhaps sharing. And I, I'll tell you my favourite passage. The most amazing thing about that word love, <laughs> <laughs> is that you can give a, give it away as much as you want. And guess what? It doesn't diminish like money. It increases. And St. Augustine, who was a, a depressive at one stage, fighting his sins and fighting his himself in the city of God with his autobiography, at the end he basically said, love is the only thing that counts. You can give it to someone freely. Don't sit there hoarding it. Give it. Because you're just going to increase the love in the world. It's back to your human generosity projects, um, Athena, that I love so much. What's the problem about being generous? What's the problem about being happy for the partner more than we are for ourselves? In fact, who isn't happier for their loved one
2: more than they are when good things happen to them? Well, you're sounding a little polyamorous right now. Thank you. I I love that. I love the commonality. I
4: love it, Diana.
0: Well, I would love to... Love to um, <laughs> open up for um, the audience. Do you have any questions for any of our guests? You can raise your hand up, and um, Dave will, will come on over to you. Yeah. All
4: right.
0: So, anyone have questions?
2: for our guests. So let's rephrase it. You definitely have a question. <laughs> <laughs> Who has a question? <laughs> so.
1: So. All right. So, so. so I, I am very concerned by the the way that technology is amplifying us, particularly the phones. Um, and so Diane shared a few ideas about reducing the at least the pos- the feedback uh, addictions. But um, I'm wondering if if you have other um, other ideas about how to, in terms of how technology is influencing us or society, what are the good solutions to that, or what are good interventions that you would like to see done or is being done? Both of you.
2: No, no. I mean, I just, I just, I don't know firsthand because I don't know people who work at Facebook or Twitter or or, or any of the other ones. But I, I do know that they that they try different things out. They do A/B testing. I've heard, for example, that the the gap between when you load twitter and when it shows you how many notifications you have is actually a behaviorist design it builds up some anticipation before you see that dopamine hit of like Mm -hmm. oh 10 people have mentioned me or liked my tweets or whatever it's so (laughs) exciting i don't use instagram because that would probably just blow my mind (laughs) but yeah i wonder if you have any ideas like you know if you could have a program on your phone now your phone tells you how many hours a week you spent on it which is uniformly horrifying
4: Yeah, um, so many different solutions. It's a great question. We're all struggling with it, even me. Um, Some physical things. um, Don't have your phone with you in the kitchen, in the car, in the bedroom. That's really tough because that's where people talk to each other. You pick up the kids, yep, 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 right, in the car. Or you go to sleep with your spouse or your partner or you put your kids to sleep. Don't have it in your pocket. And in the kitchen it's a sacred space where you're cooking, cooking. Often when I've cooked and I haven't had a chance to run and throw the phone away somewhere or put in a bag, the kids will hear the ting. And they say, "Mummy, a message. And I say, don't worry about the message. We're together now. That's it. Um, so there's a physical sort of behavioural thing. Turn off your notifications. Pavlov's dog, right? Um, ting, ting, ting. And then what happens after a little while? People are doing this. And it's not even tinging, right? It's this natural, mm-hmm. oh, I'm at the stop. bus stop. You know, I'm in between the lecture, I'm waiting. In fact, resist the urge to talk to the person, go to the... You know, say, Josh, how was your day? And that's also hard. Turn off the notifications. Um, I would say you could... Self-regulating software, like a, a, a company I was an ambassador for in Australia, the company's bug being, it had 11,000 downloads of its app in the first month. And the, it was the highest-rating app in Britain for a short time, even though it was an Aussie app. And antisocial lets you set barriers There's nothing wrong with Facebook, right? If it's 30 minutes, if it's an hour, if you use it for your work, 20 minutes, whatever it is. People have a a big problem, particularly in the workplace. Um, Pew came out two years ago by saying um, 20% of the time to 40% of the time people are on the internet at work is non work related stuff. That's a problem. Productivity dips. We see that with our young people who are coming into consulting firms. In fact, uh, partners from some of the big four have said to me, Katina, it's the 17 screens are open and nothing's doing. All these screens and then the work turned into the boss or to the academic or to whomever uh, is not even a page. It's sloppy and you think we've lost face. We don't even realise that this is not credible anymore, right? Um, There are other things like uh, removing the app completely if it's bothering you. And we see this in times go up and down. It's a pick and trough. Uh, Some of our young people particularly are suffering, uh, particularly girls. Women are more susceptible. It's been proven by all the Facebook, Facebook addiction scales, the South Korean addiction smartphone scales. There are now different scales for different things. And so if women are predisposed by nature to compare, to look at the other... Uh, to look at that woman who's online and to say, oh, she's got the best holiday, she's got the best family with the perfect three kids, which really none of us have. The reality is none of us look curated at night time when we're dealing with the difficult problems. The most difficult problems in the world are in our household, right? We face them every day. Um, And and, uh, some of this is the tech. When the kids are playing video games on their phones, listening to you passively when they should be doing homework. Well, you can play games, there's nothing wrong. Do your homework first sort of, and it's it's always been constantly reaffirming and positive reinforcement. You can't tell a child, switch off your computer, switch off your telephone. It doesn't work. You've got to be positive about how you approach the child. You've got to whisper in their ears daily in a positive way. You know, you're doing so well. How about trying this, you know, and model, model the behaviour as parents, because often we are the worst offenders. You know, when babies... Um, pick up a, a frame and start doing this,
2: <laughs> or, <a magazine>. <laughs> <laughs> or,
4: or when they get their fake mobile phone, which the parent has bought at the toy shop for two cents, and start pacing up and down the hallway, acting like you because you're always on the phone, like I am, <laughs> right? What's this? What are, what are we showing? So these are just some very basic, I have papers written on this uh, with peers uh, who are psychologists, but... Please don't think I'm giving you the, the end solution. The most important thing to remember is that we're all responsible for this, this behaviour, um, that it is addiction by design at times. There are people in the audience, like Sky, who's an economist, starting to be an economist and a mathematician, who was talking to me about behavioural economics. How? And I said to her, we can build persuasive technologies. We can design tech for good in the app. So that the app says, that's enough for today because I've known you've reached your limit as a 16 year old, age appropriate services. I'm I'm creating a standard for that for IEEE at the moment. Are you 12? Are you 14? Are you three, six, nine? At three, there should be no screen time. At six, there should be this. At nine, there should be this. Just as ballpark guidelines. But when our own social media companies are saying that at 13, you're an adult, and there is no check for you to subscribe and hop online, you could be six with a Facebook account. We have to be responsible in a way we innovate. Mm -hmm. So there are lots of strategies, there are lots of challenges, but the good news is we are creating young people like students uh, who are coming out like Sky, like uh, uh, Leah and Sarah in the audience who want to build the great technologies that we're all going to say, finally, finally, we have something good in society where we can self-regulate and where there's media literacy embedded in our curriculum Why is it that we learn maths, English, and we don't learn about the the biggest thing, this? Our our little one should be learning about the power of this. How can we exploit this for collaboration, for good things, for for innovative and innovation? And how can we leave those drawbacks uh, uh, with the young kids, particularly while their brains are (laughs) falling
0: in Do we have another question from the audience?
2: Um, so I'm curious about this experience of looking at each other in the eyes and then we've done it I'm a, have a background in theater and we used to do it in theater all the time to
1: try to get you know to get intimate with our cast members but it is always deeply
2: uncomfortable deeply uncomfortable so I was just wondering if you had any information about why it is so uncomfortable.
1: <laughs>
3: you know no, no I was going to say something. Uh, I really appreciate what you said about the positive reinforcement with technology and the kids because, you know, occasionally me, uh, my girlfriend and I are nagging each other. You're always on your phone. We're together. I'm always on my phone. And then every once in a while, you're talking for an hour. Where's my phone at? Oh, this was wonderful. <laughs> I lost my phone for an hour. Yeah. And we're just lost in that. And that, that is so much
2: more powerful. Uh, than, you know, being on each other about how much you want so Uh Just before we talk about why looking in the eyes is so awkward, uh, there's an app that I have called Forest. I'm embarrassed at how... <laughs> incredibly effective it is. I grow little trees. It's amazing. <laughs> and then it's if I get amazing. on my phone, the little tree wilts. And um, it For dies. some reason. That's awesome. I've been using this for a year and there's like new little trees. And then if you have a partner, you guys can both grow a little tree. Together. And, uh, and Jeffrey's convinced that these things are more, more, are more like effective for women. He's like, I don't care about your little trees. Um, he's like, I'm like, can you get on Google Maps and see where we're going? I'm growing a tree right now. <laughs> for your tree <laughs> so the,
3: three, the longer you're on your phone the less good so you, it is you grow you
2: grow a better tree and then you have to spend like you decide how long you're going to be on there two hours and then that's awesome. yeah it's so silly um, but I'm really obsessed with this and that's actually really reduced my screen time um, but I'll just say about looking in the eyes isn't it like a threat it's a threatening mm-hmm. gesture to look directly in the eyes of a stranger it's like a, a dominance display if you're not quite familiar with each other
4: that, that's a very interesting thing um I look at it from various uh, lenses, uh, particularly in, in cultural settings. I, I taught predominantly Asian and Indian students uh, in Australia, uh, particularly in the master's courses of computing, and they will never look at you in the face. They may come right up to your nose because it's a cultural thing, but they will not look at you in the eyes. You know, this this feeling of I'm watching you, but also it's disrespectful. It's a sign of disrespect to look in people's eyes, usually in particular cultures. Um, I do recall going to a class uh, at a time that uh, we were having difficulty having kids and we were going through an adoption course. It was uh, run by the Department of Community Services. And we had a speaker come in talking to us about the fact that we were doing inter-country adoption and we had chosen China. And that the majority of children, particularly female, whom are abandoned more than males in China because of the one-child policy before, uh, 2012 uh, would have some kind of cognitive delay, and we would. Dis- this was discussed by a sociologist and also psychologists in the room. That one of the reasons the cognitive delay happens is because we don't look at each other's eyes. Mm-hmm. And so, when there was one carer for 400 female babies in orphanages, mm-hmm. how much sight is someone going to get? How much love is someone going to get? Mm-hmm. How much attachment? And so when you're ta- when you're going through parenting courses, you're taught attachment and feed the child closely. Even if you can't breastfeed and you don't have the milk coming through for whatever reason, or you can't because of other life choices, uh, keep the baby close and feed closer. That it feels loved. And someone said cuddles. I think it was you, Carlo. But that's that's what actually you know. Talking about the trees, we say in, in Greek, dendra um, and. Um, triandafila that sprout, that come up from the soil. That's our kids, that's our babies. They're coming from a seed inside of us, but they're sprouting up because we love them and we cuddle them and we teach them bond and reassurance. And the eye contact helps And them we stay off our phones enough to, yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> to grow they, them. It's not, like, it's not like cuddle, cuddle, cuddle like this, right? <laughs> Which is often the, the, the tragedy. But, but listen to this one. And we challenged this in the audience. They told us children in China had died as a result of a lack of eye contact. And we all went, no, yeah. It made sense. If you don't look at someone, it means you're not feeding them. It means you're not clothing them. And we are all, I will tell you now, not a single one of us in this room has been not uh, complicit to taking this first beyond the child or beyond the partner or beyond the person who's in desperate need of us because we think just another line. And I can tell you, every time it's happened to me, I can, I, my heart breaks because I think, darn it, I research on this stuff. And I can't do it. Like, and so what do you do? You know, a documentary we did on In My Mind, uh, it was called Social Obsession. The couple that was in the documentary, one of the three case studies, left this at home because that was the only way they were going to detach and they drove as far away as they could from their house so <laughs> they would look at each other at the beach and not on the phone and that's online you can see that documentary
2: it's
4: Thanks. extreme but
2: one, one thing i'll say is that uh, jack dorsey the the head of twitter went on a vipassana retreat for 10 days and when you go on vipassana i've been on three vipassana retreats you're not allowed to be on your phone you're not allowed to write or read you're not allowed to speak and it's amazing how deeply you can think about stuff. Sometimes silly stuff. I wrote a whole stand-up routine once. <laughs> and then I lost it because you're know, not allowed to write. Um, so there's so many things that you can that you can think about. And Cal Newport is this guy who wrote Deep Work. I think Deep Work is an interesting book, but it doesn't really tell you how to get to deep work. It just says, if you're carrying your phone around with you all the time, if you have this brain, brain. candy, <laughs> if you have brain candy all the time with you, then you're actually not going to be reaching for those more satisfying you know brain meals potentially so it's like all that all that all that proximate kind of reinforcement that you're experiencing and it's really hard for me um i made a rule that um not to use my phone or ipad in bed and it got broken in the last two weeks and i have to start that again you just always have to you know, use the same way you That's were with the, your kids rewarding yeah. with them if like, could would be like i'm not a, i am a failure but i'm not a failure <laughs> i have yeah. to like get you know get back into this into this rule
0: Great. Any um, final thoughts from our guests, things that you want to share about love and how love, the zombification of love, either can be a good thing or a bad thing, things that people should take with them from this episode? Jessica, do you have anything?
5: I don't know. I, I think it's a good thing to be zombified by love because I don't think people actually like each other enough if they're not zombified by love to actually stand each other. <laughs> <laughs> not, <laughs> not, not cynical at all. <laughs>
3: uh, beware of self-deception in love and life. I deleted my Twitter several months ago, and then, feeling great, re-downloaded to make a work Twitter, and now I don't get off it because I'd hate for my career to suffer. <laughs> <laughs> Undead love. I came
4: with telling you... There's no such thing as the dead. We're all living, even those who have passed on.
2: I will just say that you know evolution made us such that we you know we focus our attentions and efforts on on a person and um, you know usually to to raise offspring and then we also focus our attention we fall in love with our babies, we fall in love with our children, we fall in love with each other and you can have a cynical view of what that's about, and a cynical view of how we are zombifying each other and still find the beauty in that you just you have a more realistic view of it people always say you know diana you have this incredibly cynical view about human nature and how people interact doesn't that make everything you know lose its luster for you no not at all because i see the beauty in the feeling and i also see the beauty in the design of the feeling
0: great well
2: thank you all
0: for sharing your brains with us for this Yay. episode of Zombify. <laughs> <laughs> and if the
3: whole world
2: says that
0: apocalypse medicine alliance thank you to the department of psychology to the interdisciplinary cooperation initiative and the president's office at asu to the lincoln center for applied ethics and thank you to all of the brains that help make this podcast tall rom who does our sound neil smith our amazing illustrator Lemmy, the creator of the song Psychological and our Z team of graduate students, undergraduates, postdocs who help make the Zombified podcast happen. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We are Zombified Pod. And on Facebook, we're Zombified Podcast. Um, you can also support us on Patreon. We are all educational. No ads, um, except for this one right now, to go on Patreon and support us. <laughs> Thank you all for listening to Zombified, your source for fresh brains.
3: But it seems so logical I can't deny that there is something
1: supernatural with you Makes me out the way I do